0: All right, well, join me in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 15. And this is, this is one of those sections uh, in Scripture where we really have an unfortunate chapter break. And, um, you know, one of the, the guys that's credited with that is a, is a, name, is a guy by the name of Robert Et- Etienne, or some people call him Stephanus, And he was the one who went through the Scriptures and began to, div- to divvy things up into verses and chapters. And, um, you know, I don't know what happened to him here. You know, maybe he was on a buggy, the horse hit a bump and his and his hand went up and he hit the bottom of the page. He's like, Oh, I'll just start it new here. Or maybe he thought, Man, Paul has been going on forever. I just I'm gonna throw in a chapter break there to kind of break this up a little bit. We don't know. It's an unfortunate chapter break because really this week is, is going to be some of the same things that we've been talking about the last five or six weeks. It goes right with what we've been studying in chapter 14. And um, one of the things, again, as I mentioned last week, is that oftentimes teachers will repeat or restate or reemphasize things because it's such an important topic and they want to be sure that people get it. right, And that's what good teachers do. In fact, you you all can relate. There's probably been something along the way in your school, um, in your own study, where after the sixth time you heard it, you're like, oh man, now I finally get it. Now I got it. It makes sense. And so I think Paul knew this was an important topic because here's the thing. When believers disagree on non-essentials, I think the question that chapter 14, this first part of chapter 15 answers is, is when they disagree on non-essentials, how can they still maintain unity in the church? And see, unity in the church is very important, especially when it's around something that's clear doctrinal teaching. So why would we want to divide around other things that aren't clearly spelled out in the scripture, where it doesn't really matter where you fall on the issue. It just matters your heart and your understanding. And are you walking by faith? How are you doing it? Are you doing it as unto the Lord? And so it begs the question, how can you work together and not separate? And and you'd think that in the American church, that the goal is to get a homogenous group of ideas with one group, one person. And if you don't agree with our homogenous ideas, then you can just go down a street. And, and you'd think that that was the goal of church, was I need to find a place where I agree with everyone on every little thing or I'm going to go find another church. And see, we separate over the, the dumbest, can I say dumb? The dumbest things we separate over. And, and there are certain things that the Bible is really clear that are separation issues. You know, if you're going to teach that the gospel's through works, You know, I I might spend some time with you, but I'm not going to do church with you. I'm not going to lock arms in a ministry with you. That is one of those separation issues is the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ. These these cardinal doctrines that are so clearly taught in the scripture, those are separation issues. Not these other non-essential issues, not music, not Harry Potter, not how you homeschool your kids or how you school your kids, not any of these, non, these are not separation issues, and yet the American church has taken all of these things and made them separation issues. We, we fall into that category all the time. In fact, we'll separate over a non-essential and we'll go to a church that doesn't even preach the gospel. We'll, we'll separate because they've got good rock music, but the message stinks, but at least I'm getting my music in. Those aren't separation issues. That's what we've got to understand. And so when we talk about non-essentials, who are we to please? who are we to please well that's what the section's going to answer this morning in fact when we get into verse 1 we're going to see that there's an obligation there's a something that we must do and then we're going to see this word please and if i can just point this out a second you can see it in your own text but you're going to see this word please used 3 times in this first couple of verses right here please you're going to see it in verses um, two, and you're going to see it in verse 3. So this is really kind of a key term to understand as we go into this section. We'll define it here as we go. So verse, then, verse 1, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to, what's it say, please ourselves. And so he says, we then who are strong. Remember, he goes back to this word strong and weak. This is who he, he's picking this up from chapter 14. Who are the strong? That we're referring to here. Well, everybody says, Well, I'm the strong one, right? No, nobody, I've said that before, nobody reads through this passage and says, Oh, yeah, I'm the weak one. Everyone thinks they're the strong one, but who are the strong uh, according to Paul? Well, these are the doctrinally sound believers. These are believers that understand their grace resources in Christ, understand the right approach to non essentials, understand their liberties. And then you've got other believers who are referred to as weak, and these are the non doctrinally sound. And where do we get that from? Well, if you jump back, um, all the way back into verse, or, or chapter 14, verse one, he says, receive one who is weak in the faith. That's a doctrinally weak believer. And so what you've got is you've got really uh, two different views of non-essentials. One camp understands their grace, ra- grace resources and says, you know what, I've got liberty in that area. I can go this way, I can go that way. It's not a big deal. I, as long as I'm doing what I'm doing before the Lord, I'm fine. Then you've got the other side who views um, views it as sin, okay? Especially in this area of eating meat, as we've seen um, with with the church that that Paul's writing to here, the church of Rome. There's this eating meat issue, and so he says this in verse one: We then who are strong ought to um, bear uh, this with the scruples of the weak, and again. This is the visual we've used, but the strong are doctrinally correct, the weak are doctrinally incorrect. And then we look at this phrase, ought to. And the word ought to means that you're, you're indebted to. You're, you're obligated to act in this way. If, if you are strong doctrinally, it doesn't mean that you can just be right doctrinally and be a jerk in practice. It doesn't mean that you can be right doctrinally and flaunt your liberties in front of other people. That's not the the method the the method is you you have a responsibility if you understand grace resources to not please yourself and we'll look at that word here in a second in fact this word ought to ought to remind us of what Paul said back in Romans thirteen eight where he uses the same word and what does he say oh no one anything except to love one another for he who loves another has fulfilled the law and that's exactly what we've been saying the last two or three weeks love. Always trumps liberty. Always trumps liberty. Liberty is never a good guide for conduct. Those who use liberty as a guide for conduct think this way, I'm free to do it, therefore I'll do it. I don't care who I hurt in the process, I'm going to get it done. They can't stop me. I'm free in Christ. I can't believe they would try to restrict me. I'm free in Christ. Don't they understand grace? And that's the attitude that seeps through when liberty guides our conduct and not love. Love is always going to be thinking of other people. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. In fact, he goes on to say this, bear with. And, you know, the idea of, of bearing with means to take up, to to hold with one's hands, to raise upon a basis in order to support. And I think this is a beautiful picture. Anybody ever walked hand in hand with a little child and had to slow down your walking pace to meet their pace. That's the image, that's the image. And so he says, bear with, take up, hold up. There's uh, The scruples of the weak literally means that the impotence or weakness of powerless ones. In other words, they, they have this conscience issue, this sensitive conscience that if they do certain things that you recognize as a liberty that's not sin, but if they do it, it's gonna be sin to them. So you know what? You modify your pace to them. You don't drag them along. I've seen that too. See moms and dads in grocery stores with kids. Kids are trying to modify mom and dad's pace, and mom and dad ain't having it, man. And they're, by the time they're, they're getting drug on the floor. I actually saw a video. You know the old, uh, the old concept of the hold on to the rope when you're on a public school field trip has just gone bonkers in our society because now people have it where they strap it on to the, put a little backpack on the kids and they got like a little leash. And I was actually seeing parents drag their kids by the leash in a store. So that, that would be the opposite of this. And this is uh, what we're talking about. And so it, what it does is this, this image that it creates is it's, it's a much more tender response to somebody's differences and non-essentials. It's, it's a much more, um, it's, a, it's a long-term adjusting type response um, and that's typically not the way that non-essentials are handled, unfortunately. Typically, and this is why Paul has had to teach on it for so long through Romans 14 and 15, is this, we treat them with disdain. We despise them. I mean, they're slowing us down. They're getting in our way. They're limiting our liberties. I mean, this is ridiculous. I I should be able to do this and because this person over here is doing this. Oh, I got to limit my liberties. And we get so bent out of shape. With people. And so it, it becomes not a, a, a bearing with and slowing down and adjusting our pace. It becomes this. Exactly what I described this, this mom dragging the kids. You know, this, this just like, don't slow me down. If you slow me down, if I have to adjust my pace, I'm going to run you over. That's the wrong way to approach this whole topic of liberty. So he uses a different phrase in verse 15. In contrast, we we are to bear with the scruples of the weak, but in contrast, we're not to please ourselves. And this is really where this first use of the word please comes in. And so it's in contrast to our obligation to bear with the weakness of our brethren. And we get to this word please. Now I want, to, I want you to just see this word because it's going to be used multiple times. We'll try to, you know, we're going to try to keep the same definition all the way through. It's the same word used. It means this: to fit to adapt, to make one inclined to, or to be content with. You see, and when you seek to please yourself and non-essentials, when you do the opposite of this, what you're actually saying is, everyone around me needs to please me. Everyone needs to adjust. Everyone needs to adapt. Everyone needs to get their stuff together so that I can exercise my liberty. And, and Paul's saying, no, no. Take that mindset and just do the opposite. That, that's the wrong mindset. That's the natural mindset. Spiritually speaking, when the spirit of God is in control of your life, it's going to be the opposite of that. You are going to adapt or adjust or fit or incline to somebody else's pace. That's the mindset that we're talking about here. So he says, don't please yourself. So to truly bear with weaker brethren, we must at times sacrifice our our own comfort sacrifice our, our pace, so to speak, and sacrifice our contentment to support them. This, these are areas that we're willing to give up. You know, and one of the things that we looked at uh, in chapter 14 many, many times is, is really, you're going to destroy your brother for food. Really. That's like, that piece of steak is that important to you. Or that piece of beef jerky is that important to you. Or whatever the, the meat was that were sacrificed to idol. It really, you're going to destroy your brethren so that you can have a margarita at the Mexican restaurant. Really? Like that's, that's more important than they are? You know, in what Christian world? It, you know, God, God died for sins. He died for the penalty of sins. Not so that you could drink a margarita at, at happy hour right? So he's got much more concern about people than oftentimes we do. And so he says, don't just live life to please yourself, but to expect everybody else to adapt and adjust to your liberties. That's, I think, the main point. See, it's better in the Lord's eye to handle the weaker brethren and their weaknesses with care than to exercise our own freedom in Christ of areas of non-essential. You know, and any of you who have ever been married know exactly what this looks like. It took me about a week into marriage, and I'm sorry it took me that long. I'm sorry to my wife it took me that long to realize. My schedule is no longer my own. Don't, don't we know that? Ho- hopefully you do. <laughs> if you don't, pay close attention. Your schedule's not your own. And, and um, that may save some frustration in your marriage. But, you know, I don't put things on my calendar that I don't first discuss with my wife. Now there are certain hours of the day that I don't need to discuss with my wife, right? If I'm working and I need to put a, a work appointment on a work calendar, or if I'm, as a pastor now, if I need to meet with somebody, then, then I put it on my calendar if it's within those hours, et cetera. But you know, every other hour outside of that, I, I've got to adjust to my wife's schedule. I have to adapt to her schedule. We have to adapt to each other's schedule. And that's just one example of how we do it practically. But now we're talking about the areas of non-essentials, and it's like Christians just like, on this issue many times, it's like we grit our teeth, we roll our sleeves up, and we say, I'm going to do it my way, or ugh. And it's like, no, that's the wrong mindset. That is the wrong mindset. And and the idea is that everybody else needs to adjust to us, not the opposite way around. And that's why in verse 2, he's going to go on to say, let each of us. Please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. One of the things that we're going to find in this verse is this is a present tense command. It's an imperative. Okay, so now he's saying we should not please ourselves, but let me tell you what you should do. You should be doing this. You should be pleasing your neighbor for his good, leading to his edification. The, The fact that it's a present active imperative indicates its immediacy. Like Paul's not saying, yeah, you know, consider this for a couple days and get back to me. And then if we need to talk more, no, Paul's just saying, hey, guys, this needs to be done right now. It needs to be implemented right now. And this needs to be a habitual way of life and a habitual way of thinking in all of these areas. You know, today for the Roman believers, it was meat. Today for the Roman believers, it was days. What's it going to be tomorrow, right? So today, what, you know, what's the issue? You know, this used to be an issue in church, piano. Then it became an issue the other way, like it could only be the piano, right? And so the, what's coming next? That uh, we, can't, we can't predict every area of non-essential that's gonna become an area of disagreement in the church going forward in the future, but what we can't emphasize is the biblical principle behind how we deal with one another when we disagree on non-essentials. We can understand that, and that can be a universal principle. It's true for the Roman believers. It's true for us today, and you know what? If the church had a lot more of it, we'd have a lot healthier and stronger churches in our land that were actually focused on the main thing, evangelism, discipleship. But, you know, when you get bent out of shape about pianos, you get bent out of shape about carpet, you get bent out of shape about this, bent out of shape about this, then your church becomes, oh, we're the church that doesn't do this, this, and this. Or we're the church that does this, this, and this. You know, I I remember growing up, I went to a church and, Anyways, I won't say too much about it, but I, but I will say this, that in the community, we were known as the homeschool church, right? The, we were the homeschool church. That's what our church was known as. And, and let me tell you, you know, that sounds very innocent, doesn't it? But you know what that church was not about? Evangelism and discipleship. Now, they were about everything else that the moral majority in America would be you know amening to and hallelujahing to and and, and everything else, and i 'm not against morals i 'm not against that i 'm actually more into spirituality than morality because if we 're walking by means of the spirit he 's going to produce moral lives in the believers right so we want to we want to just keep the main thing the main thing so many times we get caught off on this, and we just start. We just start just getting bent out of shape on the, the silliest of things. we lose track of what is the main goal. Now, this, uh, this word "please" obviously is the same word that we see in verse one. And so in contrast to pleasing ourselves via liberties, we 're to adapt or be content with our neighbor. We're to adjust our liberties for others. And I liked what, what William Newell says. This is, I think, an insightful thought that goes to the heart of why we do what we do. He said this, that this type of approach, let each please his neighbor for his good, indicates a studied care for others. I like that phrase, a studied care for others, laying aside our own preferences, pleasing them in every way that will in the end benefit them spiritually. See, this actually, if I can be sarcastic for a moment, this actually means we take our focus off of ourselves for a few minutes, and we actually consider what would be good for somebody else instead of saying, "You know what? I'm free to do it. Thus, I'm going to do it. And if I run over to them, I don't care." No, it's, it's taking a moment to pause and say, "Hmm, would this harm anybody?" And my brothers and sisters, well, if so, that I can restrict it because I don't care one way or the other if I do this. I understand it's a liberty. But it's, that's not the main thing. I'm not driving that home to get my point across. One thing it does not mean, though, if I can just make, mention this, you know, it doesn't mean to encourage weaker brothers to continue in a lack of doctrinal understanding. We, we want them to grow doctrinally. We want them to understand their grace resources in Christ. We want them to know that if you eat meat, that's not sin. If you play cards, that's not sin. Now, I just said that 100 years ago. I would have been kicked out of the church. They'd be like, we're voting this pastor out, man. He said something about playing cards or whatever. Now we laugh about those things because we understand a little bit more, maybe our grace resources, Christ, that playing cards in and of themselves are not sin. But what it does is it, we want to adapt the exercise of our liberty for his or her sake. And this is, not man-pleasing. I think that's very important to understand because when we talk about pleasing men, the reason, the motivation behind typically when you talk about man-pleasing is I'm going to do something for them in their sight so that I look better. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about doing something to another believer or restricting a liberty so that God is glorified. See the difference? The the motivation for one is I look better, they think better of me. That's man-pleasing. We... Many of us struggle with that. I know I, I do. That's, a, that's a, a constant struggle of mine. It's just trying to do things so that people look well on me, right? It's just a constant struggle. That's unfortunately the way I'm wired. I don't know why. I'm just wired that way. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about something much different. We're talking about restricting our liberties for somebody else's benefit to the glory of God. This is a totally different motivation sitting behind it, although the actions could potentially look the same. So this adjustment that the strong believer makes is for his neighbor's good, not for his harm. And so why should we do this for his good? Why should we do this for his good? Like like what is the big deal like pleasing his neighbor, adapting, adjusting your pace for another believer? Why is that for his good? Well, here's the thing. For many of us, we think that the only thing that's good for our neighbor is immediate adjustment in their doctrinal understanding of grace and non-essentials. And see, we will just, we will get in people's face to convert them to our way of thinking because we think that's the way that we get them to be good, or that's the way that we get them to adjust, that's the way that we get them to grow. And Paul is going to say in verse 2, no, no, take it a little bit slower. Okay, Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady rinse the waves. And, you know, so many times we get into these, these discussions. Well, discussions is a nice way to put it. And that's like, you know, makes you feel a little bit better. But typically they're arguments. This is what they really are. We get into these arguments with other believers and we just want to jam truth right in their face. We just want to, if it was a WWF match, we would be body slamming them and dropping elbows off the top turnbuckle, Right little leg whip action, little throw them up on the octagon, whatever illustration you want to use. That was, that's what we try to do spiritually to people. And then we, we usually give them one conversation, and then if they don't change their mind, we just, I'm done with them. I'm done with them. Or I'm out of here, right? It's one way or the other. We just completely reject them, or we just separate and we leave. That's not the response. See, this is actually going to take care and concern and gentleness and maybe a long-going ministry of grace so that they actually begin to experience grace and maybe over time they grow doctrinally. And then they begin to see, you know what? I was really foolish to consider that a sin. Now I know better. But it may take years. And see, that's the tenderness that's the care that Jesus Christ wants you and I to interact with within his bride. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're part of the bride, but the believer sitting next to you is too. And Jesus wants the same type of tenderness and the same type of care given to them that you've received over the years. The time that it's taken you to grow in your doctrinal understanding, why do we have a hard time extending that to somebody else that's maybe not had that exposure to the teaching? I don't know. That's a question for me too. I don't know why we're not more more patient, but this would be the encouragement here because I think many times we think the answer is if I can just sit them down and open the Bible and give them enough verses, they'll change their mind and they'll be converted to my side, my way of thinking and then they can stay because if they don't don't convert to my way of thinking, they need my way of thinking, stinking is true too. If they don't convert to my way of thinking, then they need to go right? And so that's, that's not the mindset. We, we want to move away from that. And then notice this, and this is very important. Verse two, let's go back. Let each of us please his neighbor for good, present active imperative. Need to do that immediately. Adapt, adjust our pace for our neighbor. We're doing it for his own good. Then notice what it leads to when we take that approach. Look at verse two, leading to edification. And what does edification mean? It means building up, I mean, isn't that what you want when you body slam someone doctrinally? Don't you want them to build up in their understanding? So the very thing you want to accomplish just isn't accomplished by jamming it in their face. It's accomplished this way. And it's a much slower process. And you may not think you're getting anywhere. But you know what? We're going to see. Trust God's methods. Trust God's timing. Trust the way that God wants to lead you to do this. Because not only that, it's going to cause less nuclear explosions in local churches, number one. And you actually might see people grow. You know, they may stop wearing the jean skirt. You'll be like, man, where did they get that, that, that jumper or those slacks? I didn't even know. They own slacks. You know, if it's, a, if it's a dress issue. Or you might see someone, wow, they man, they've been in flip-flopping flip-flop shirts. Why are they wearing a tie all of a sudden? Like, what's going on in their thinking? And, and you begin to see people just, and I try to use both sides of that, <laughs> that dress code thing for a reason, but you just see that people are changing their thinking. You're like, wow, what's going on in their head? Why are they doing that as unto the Lord? What, what's, what's in their thinking? And you begin to see people begin to interact with the word of God. They begin to be convinced of themselves. They begin to do what they do is unto the Lord. You know what? That's more important than where they fall on a non-essential issue. That's what we've got to remember. And so we want to see that growth. So basically, if you want to build your weaker brother up in the faith, it's not going to happen through insistent doctrinal badgering. You know, oh, I'm going to shoot them this email. This article was really good. Oh, I'm going to print this out and give that to them. Oh, I'm going to buy them this book. That's, that's insistent doctrinal Badgering—that's that's that's a that's a badgering uh, of sorts there—and that's not the way this is going to happen. But being gracious with adjusting our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother, not flaunting our liberties, jamming it in their face—these are the types of things that are going to build our brother and sister up. Now, what's really interesting, and I and I love this because Paul's about to drop the ace card on us in verse three because he's going to give you a reason, he's going to give me a reason. For the command in verse 2, and the reason is this. Guess who limited his liberties when he was on earth? Ah, okay. I get it. Like, Paul, that was unfair, right? That's a low blow. Of course Jesus did. But no, of course Jesus didn't. That's, that's not an of course statement. But it is when you know his character, but you'd think, wait a minute, why does Jesus have to limit his liberties? In fact, Jesus never sinned. So could Jesus, do you think Jesus had an understanding of what he was free to do and what was actual sin and what he could do, what he couldn't do? Don't you think Jesus, of all people who's ever walked the face of the earth, understood the distinctions there? I mean, clearly, right? That's a Sunday school answer. Yes, of course he did, right? We all, we all know that. But even Jesus limited his liberties. Even the Son of God limited, adjusted, adapted in these areas of liberty to the people around him. Now, let's look at this a little bit more closely. Verse verse three, for even, notice that word for, it, it builds on what Paul's been saying before. For even Jesus did not please himself. There's our same word again. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So even Christ did not please himself. Again, another strong reason for the command in verse two. And as stated, Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, and even he limited his liberties. And you, you say to yourself, well, where did he limit his liberties? How did he do that? Well, just think through some stories with me. What happened in, when he was tempted in the wilderness? Could Jesus Could Jesus turn bread into, or I'm sorry, turn stones into bread? Yeah, he could. Was there anything inherently sinful about doing that if he was hungry? Nothing inherently sinful. But he doesn't do it. Could Jesus have cast himself off of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and summoned thousands of angels to catch him so he wouldn't dash his foot? Yeah, he he had the ability to do that you know he's the son of god he's he's omnipotent he's all powerful he's he's omniscient he's all knowing he he's he, you know he can do whatever he wants to do he's all powerful right these are some of the things just even in his life as we as we walk as we walk through we we see in Matthew 26 he could have called angels to save him from the cross he could have done that he could have jumped right off the cross jesus paid the temple tax remember that story I mean, cool story, right? We don't talk about it a lot. Sends, a, sends Peter, go go pull out a fish and you'll, you'll get the temple tax out of the fish's mouth. You're like, wow, that's incredible. I want to catch that kind of fish, you know, that's got money spewing out of its mouth. But he paid the temple tax even though he, he owned the temple. And then the big one is in Philippians 2, right? That he emptied himself by taking on human form. And he limited the voluntary use of his divine attributes while on earth. I mean, this is, this is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, why? Was Jesus Christ walking around me, 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 my liberty, my liberty, no problem. I'm going to bowl you over. If you don't get out of my way, you need to adjust to me. Even though he had the right to do that, no, he wasn't. He was always thinking of others. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. Let this mind be with you. In fact, j- jump down to Verse 5, i I'm mean, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but that's okay. Romans 15, 5. Then may the God of patience and comfort grant you, what? To be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. So how did Jesus think? Leading out thinking of others. What is Paul asking that the Roman believers and, and by consequence us, that we would be like-minded in these areas of non-essentials leading out thinking of others. Just like Jesus did just like Jesus limited his liberties. You know that Jesus did not live his life with the goal of exercising his own liberties for his own personal benefit. You know that Jesus, his conduct was not governed by his liberties, as we've said many times. He always took regard of and adapted to the weaknesses of those around him. This was just the way that he lived his life, and thus That's a reason that Paul gives that we should also live our life. Because the same spirit that Jesus was dependent upon during his life is the same spirit that indwells you. And the spirit of God, what what he is doing and working in this present age, one of the main things that he's doing, he is trying to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ in and through our mortal bodies. I mean, it's clear all throughout the New Testament, Galatians 2.20, 2 Corinthians 4.10 and 11, that we go through trials. Why? So that Christ may be manifest in our mortal bodies, that we would actually think and act and do the same things Jesus Christ would do if he were on this earth. And that's how Jesus said, it would be better if I go away because then I can send the helper who will not only be with you, but will be in you. And then I can fill the world with myself. And that's the goal of the church. That's Each one of you are designed to be uh, instruments or tools or mechanisms, these neutral bodies by which God reproduces the life of Jesus Christ in and through you, at work, at the grocery store, wherever, wherever you are. That's the whole goal. but then he quotes. It's interesting. It's an interesting quote. In fact, it takes you a little while. Like, why did he quote this verse? Look at verse three, but he's, as it is written, so he's going back to the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so Paul quotes Psalm 69, nine here, describing how David was consumed with zeal for the Lord's house. And because of this, when people reproach God, he also was reproached. We see John also quote this same verse in John 2.17, and he does it um, in the context of when Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple, okay? So, this is kind of a couple uses here. So, the question is, like, why did Paul quote it here? Where does it fit uh, within this context? And I think it fits here that even when you sacrifice your own liberties, even when you, you, you hold back or you adapt or you adjust to others— um, this will not always make you acceptable to everyone else, this, but it will make you acceptable to God the Father. You see, the, the occupation is not, how is this going to make me look to other people, but how's this going to make me look to God? And am I going to trust his method, his, his approach to these areas, and just leave the reju- results to him? You know, We know that in Jesus's life, he was eventually tortured and killed, and yet he lived his life completely adapted. Pleasing others, and yet he still faced an untimely demise. From a human perspective, uh, he was still persecuted and killed. Again, we're not talking about pleasing people; we're talking about being a people lover that pleases God—a people lover, a, a somebody who's going to care and consider others before I just jam off and do my liberties that I think I'm entitled to. And so, in verse fifteen four. Uh, He goes to a very familiar passage, a very popular passage, which reads this. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Do you know that God taught these same principles about non-essentials, about trusting his plan in the Old Testament? That's what he's saying. He, he's saying this isn't a new teaching per se. This is something that God has infused in his word in the Old Testament. Specifically, he's referring to the Psalm that he just quoted. But at the time of Paul's writings, the the Old Testament were the scriptures he was referring to. When he says, what everything were written before were written for our learning that we through the patient and comfort of the scriptures, that word he's referring to the Old Testament. Testament. Now, now clearly the prophets and the apostles' writings and teaching that were recorded became part of the scriptures. But when Paul's writing here, I believe he's referring largely to the Old Testament. And I believe he's specifically talking about these principles regarding non-essentials, these principles of pleasing others, these principles about taking care of others, um, and just walking with the Lord in dependence upon the Lord. In fact, when you look at the law uh, for the Jewish people, a lot of the laws that are taught there do what? Well, they teach us God's character and they would focus the Jewish people on how they were to manage life in Jewish culture, right? If you accidentally kill an ox, then here's restoration for that. You need to consider your neighbor. If you accidentally do this or you do this, then this is the restoration. So there was this, how do you, how do you work within a community how do, you, how do you work through issues that, um, that maybe aren't clearly defined? And this is what we find even in the Old Testament. Now, go back to the text for a second because what purpose were they all written specifically? Well, the text gives us an indicator. See that word in the middle of verse 4? See that word that? Very important word um, in the Greek text. It's, it's, a, it's a hena. It's the word hena. It's a hena clause, they'll call it in Greek. It gives you the purpose Okay, it's a a really nice marker when you see that in a verse because it says, okay, this is what he did and he did it for this purpose, okay? that's kind of what we see there in verse four. And so what was the purpose that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope? And so I'm going to jump to the end here. Hope is the, the end goal, okay? Hope is the end goal. Hope biblically, we've talked about this a number of times, it just means confident expectation. It means that that it's not something that you've maybe got your hands on in the present, but it's something you can look forward to and say, I'm going to the bank on that one. That is, that's as done a deal as if it was done right now. And it's this confident expectation. In fact, we speak of our salvation in terms of hope. It's it's not like much of our culture says, well, yeah, you know, I hope I'm saved. I hope I get there. I hope God'll let me in. I I almost like a wish. I wish. I don't know, 50-50. Maybe if I do something good tomorrow, 80-20. If I have a bad day, maybe 20-80. I mean, and they're kind of just bouncing all over the place. Hope via the Bible is confident expectation. Why can we be confident? Because God has promised something. He He's promised something. So we take God at his word. We say, okay, God can't lie. That way, if he says this is going to happen in the future, done deal. Just as if I had it today. That's hope. And so one of the purposes of why the scriptures were recorded so that the end game or the end goal is that you and I would have hope, confident expectation. And this hope, I believe, is clearly speaking of doing God's way in God's timing for the benefit of others and not ourselves. You know, sometimes, let's be honest, this is why it's hard, limiting our liberties doesn't seem like it's going to work. Let's just be honest. We're, we're pragmatists. We want to get done when we want to get done, and it doesn't seem like this is going to work. In fact, I've already tried two times, and it's not working, so I got to move to something else. You know, there's much more patience involved here. In fact, you know, one of the things that we can see from the Old Testament is we can see this exact concept come out in the example of Abraham, right? Limiting our liberties, looking like maybe it's not going to work out, maybe making the bad decision. And you remember the day that Abraham stood up on a hill with his nephew Lot. Their herdsmen were fighting. They couldn't share the land. And you know what Abraham does? He gets up and says, well, Lot, let me tell you something, man. God promised me this land, so you're going to have to he promised me, certainly, you're just going to have to get out of here. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but you need to go. Is that what Abraham did? No. He backed up. He said, Lot, you take the pick. Now, why would Abraham do that? that in fact, what does Lot do? He does any, what any one of us to do. It's, it, it goes back to when you, your siblings split the cookie with you and you got to pick the piece right? We all know what that's like. You're just hoping your sibling like slips a hand while they're cutting it and accidentally cuts off like three-fourths for you and a fourth for them because you know you're going to get the bigger piece. You're looking at it. You're examining the thickness of the cookie. Okay, I think they, they look even, but this one looks thicker. This side looks thicker, so I'm taking that one. That's not what Lot does, All right, it's not what Abraham does. He limits his liberty. Abraham had gotten a direct revelation from God. He should have said, Lot, you back up. I'm going to take a look at this. I'll let you know what I decide. Lot, you back up. I'm older. I'm your elder. I have the right. He doesn't do that. He limits his liberty. Lot picks Sodom and Gomorrah because guess what? It looked really cool, right? It looked oh, it was jazzy, man. This land, it's like oh. Abraham got the better end of that stick, didn't he? And Why? confident expectation in the Lord. God had promised him a land, promised him a seed, promised him a a coming kingdom, all of these things. And Abraham said, you know what? I don't need to manage and control my circumstances. I got the God of the universe guiding me. Go ahead, pick it, man. Take whatever you want. Okay, you want that? Go. Good, you take it. Just one example in the Old Testament. Just, Just one example as we see this hope. See, we can be confident as we bring it back to to our day. God's ways in terms of exercising our liberties in Christ, those are the best ways, period, period. Even if we're being reproached for doing so. And and you and I individually need to come to a place that we are willing to search the scriptures in areas of non-essentials so that God can convince us of what decision to make. And then as we make that decision, we need to do it as unto the Lord. And then you need to put your blinders on. I mean, you can continue to grow doctrinally, but you don't need to worry about what other people think about you, right? In that sense of the matter. And so how does God provide hope? Well, the text tells us really through the scriptures, but he does it in two ways. He does it in a couple of ways. And one of the things that's, that's very interesting in the Old Testament is when you think about the Old Testament, God brings his saints into many places where they have nothing but him. We've talked about Abraham before when I stole this phrase from a book I read years ago called Crowded to Christ. And it just says this, that God shut Abraham up to faith. You know, He, he got he took Abraham and Sarah to the brink of where their bodies were on the verge of death before he gave them a son. And all along the way, all along the way, Abraham still had hope and physical natural conception and God gets them to a place where the only way they were going to get pregnant is if God did something. And you know what? That's exactly what God wanted to do because then Abraham couldn't take credit. Sarah couldn't take credit. They'd have to just, when they saw, when somebody saw a baby and a hundred year old man and 90 year old woman come walking in and a baby said, Oh, is that your grandkid? No, that's ours. How'd that happen? I mean, (laughs) what do I say? I, I mean, I know how it happened, but I mean, he supernaturally intervened. That's how this thing worked out. And so God does that throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He, he describes bringing this hope a couple of different ways in the scriptures. And the first one is he does it through patience. Patience, by definition, is not a fun word when we get into the practical aspects of our Christian life. Let me just warn you on the outset. Because patient means a bearing up under or an endurance as to things or circumstances. Now, typically, what do you and I do when we have bad circumstances? We want out of them. <laughs> That's the opposite. This is a remaining under. This is a bearing under circumstances. And, and the scripture is designed to give you hope because if you've got something to look forward to, can you get through today? And that's the concept. You got something out there that's guaranteed I can get through today. Now I just remember one of the things I hated about sports, any sport I ever played was conditioning. 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 I remember I showed up to a new school in Texas my sophomore year, and my, my, my basketball coach says, you know, Clark, welcome to Texas. We're glad you're going to be a part of the basketball team. Did you know that you just joined the cross-country team too? I said, what? No, actually, I didn't. I, did I write my name on the wrong sign up? He's like, no, if you want to play basketball this year, you're going to have to be on the cross-country team. Oh, my goodness. You talk about Saturdays all fall long, where I'd show up at seven in the morning to run three miles. How exciting for a 16-year-old kid to get up on their Saturday, and I hated conditioning. But you know, one of the things that made me tolerate conditioning was when I got home. Because you know what I did? I make me a milkshake that milkshake got me through conditioning. I knew I had something good on the other side of that three miles that I could, now that's a simplistic illustration, but it kind of gives us the, the idea of what's being communicated here. And see, the scriptures are designed to convince us that God's perspective on things, why he allows things, although difficult, although trying, although sometimes even tragic, you know, he's got a plan for it. he, there's benefit in doing the will of God. There's benefit in trusting the Lord with our lives. You know, the world teaches us just the opposite. Manage, control your circumstances. The scriptures teach us to do God's will and trust him with the results. You know, and sometimes in the area of non-essentials, we, we don't want to do it God's way. We don't want to slow down. We don't want to adjust our liberties. We, wanna, uh, we don't want to adjust our pace. In fact, we want people to convert to our way of thinking now And if they don't, I'm going to the nuclear option. That's the idea. But this is saying, hey, remain under it. Be okay with a little uncomfortableness. Be okay with people that disagree with you in these areas. Work with them. Be gracious to them. Take care as to their pace as you make decisions in your own life. And then the scriptures are described as comforting. The act of exhortation, encouragement, or comfort. And we see that all of scripture is an encouragement. All of Scripture, that's what it tells us, right? The comfort of the Scriptures, we through the, patient, uh, the comfort, uh, patient and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So all of the Scriptures are designed this way. They're designed to establish the believer in the faith. See, Scripture is designed to persuade and convince the believer that you can trust God in your daily life. See, worldly wisdom is going to say, get what you can, get it now, get as much of it as you can now. That's worldly wisdom. Take it while you got a chance. Better get it while you can. Better take all as much as you can fit in your arms. You better get it now. And the scripture is going to say, no, no, just trust the Lord. Do things the right way, as as outlined in the word of God, and trust the Lord for the results. It may be a slower payoff, but that's okay. When the payoff comes, it's going to be clean, it's going to be pure, it's going to be bountiful, as they say, versus this quick fix idea because the world is going to say, take it now, take as much as you can because you deserve it. And I hate to say, but many of Christian liberty falls in that same category. Just do it. You deserve it. You're under grace. Just, just go. It doesn't matter how, if you run over somebody, just do it. Who cares? And it's it is this idea of just, hey, let's get it now. Verses five and six. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the reasons the scriptures described as um, being the source of patience and comfort is because the author of the scriptures is patience and he is comfort. This is who he is all of the time. This is why verse four can say what it does, because in verse five, he's the source of the scriptures and he is patient and he is comforting. And he is the one that he he wants to take you and I by the hand in our life as we make decisions, not only in areas of non-essentials, but as we make life decisions and guide you and lead you along the way so that you can trust him, just like a little kid trusts their parent by taking their hand in the same exact way God would have us trust him. Now, Paul has a very strong desire here. In fact, he, uh, not that you, some of you might not care, but it's used in the optative mood in the Greek, which is a very rare mood in the Greek. It doesn't happen a lot, but it's, it's, it's expressing a strong desire or wish. Okay, this is like his gut desire for this whole situation. He's kind of wrapping up this topic. And notice what his desire is. He wants um, the God of patience and comfort to grant you something to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. This is Paul's great desire in the area of non-essentials. If we could, again, summarize his heart behind why he went through all this destruction, this is it. He wants us to be like-minded in this area. He wants us to lead out thinking of other people. In fact, this is the mindset where one doesn't seek to exercise their liberties for the sole benefit of themselves, but to actually consider others. They're sensitive to others. They consider sacrificing or holding back some liberties for the benefit of others. And that is the like-mindedness that should come into the church. You know, and if every one of us, if every believer in the church of Jesus Christ had this mindset, what Paul desires, do you know that church would be a heavenly haven of rest? A, A place where you could actually come throughout the week and be refreshed. Just like, oh, that was good. I need more of that. I, I love those people. I love fellowshipping with the people. And, you know, unfortunately, most churches have become a, a hypocritical battleground of schisms and critiques and cliques and judgmentalness. And, and it's all over these issues, typically, these non-essential issues. And so, uh, you know, my heart is, is, is like that of the Apostle Paul. May God grant us like-mindedness in these areas. May we, may we not only learn about the grace of God, but may we learn how to extend grace to other believers. May we just grasp that. Maybe that be a drumbeat in our thinking. And you know, as mentioned in verse three, this is exactly what Jesus Christ did. This is why he can say, according to Jesus Christ. You know, as we're walking by means of the Spirit, what do the scriptures say? You have the mind of Christ. You, you can think this way, don't, don't say, ah, oh, that's just not how I am. You just got to give me a uh, break. I mean, no, no. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God wants to reorient your thinking to think like him. And this is how he approaches areas of non-essentials. And by the way, if this were to happen, the results would be absolutely astounding and exciting. Because guess what? Verse 6 goes on to tell us that, another Hena clause You may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if we had this mindset, God would actually get glory. And don't we want, let's just take away all of it. We always, sometimes we talk about the church and the big C. I'm going to go little C for a second. Don't we want Grace Community Fellowship? Don't we want to be like-minded in this area? Don't we want to bring God the Father glory? Well, this is one area that if we just said, you know what? I'm bought into that. I'm committed to that. that's what the word of God teaches. I want to be there. I want to recognize when I'm not there, but I want to get there for the sake, not only myself, but for my family, for the other people in the body. Isn't that where we want to be as a church? Who do you want to please? That's maybe the closing question this morning. Is your life about your liberties? Is that what your life is all about? Well, my liberties, I'm going to just exercise my liberties. don't care or it's about loving other people is it about adapting and adjusting your understanding for the benefit of other people and I hope that is the heart and passion that just drives through our local church now I hope it's the heart and passion that the big c church grabs a hold of too but hey let's start here how about that let's start on our own front porch and let's be thinking that way and let's go forward with that type of mindset let's close with a word of prayer Lord, thank you um, for your word, and Lord, I know that that this is something uh, clearly, uh, as the amount of pages you've devoted to it, the amount of verses you've devoted to this topic, that's something near and dear to your heart. And it was near and dear to the Apostle Paul's heart. Uh, Lord, understanding that this like-mindedness in the area of non-essentials is so critical to you accomplishing what you want to. Uh, not only in the church worldwide, but, Lord, specifically for our local church. That's what we want to be, Lord. We, we need you to show us and teach us and give us wisdom, how that looks, how do we execute it, how do we how can we extend grace to others. Um, Lord, we know it's as we walk by means of the Spirit, but we need wisdom in the moment um, to know how to talk to one another, to know how to respond to one another, to know how to react to one another. And so give us a heart that is that is at least bought in that this is important, And may we move forward by faith and excel in this area. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.